Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, history friends. This latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by Matchlock and the Embassy, which you can access absolutely free simply by clicking on the link in the description below. Everything is handled by this wonderful service called BookFunnel, which basically ensures that the ebook will be delivered to your e-reader of choice, whether that be a Kindle or your phone or what have you, just in case you thought that you'd just be stuck with this 500-page PDF and not know what to do with it. And having seen other people go through this process and receive their feedback, I know for a fact that it works. So don't let technology put you off. We'll talk more about Matchlock and the Embassy later on in the episode. So for now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 42 of the Thirty Years' War. In the last episode, we saw the Spanish and the Dutch fight it out in the mid to late 1620s. We learned that even while the Austrian Habsburgs enjoyed great successes against the Danes, and Emperor Ferdinand consolidated his position, the toll which the conflict had taken on the Spanish undermined the total Habsburg supremacy over Europe, which might otherwise have been possible. The Spanish system was long overdue an upgrade or proper reform, but these improvements were never attempted because Spain was almost constantly in a state of war. Rather than improve the creaky system, the Spanish leaned even more heavily upon it and kept it propped up with artificial short-term solutions, which were tantamount to kicking the can down the road. The story of Spanish decline is well documented, and it isn't something we need to dwell too heavily on today. What we're interested in instead is what role the Dutch and Spanish conflict had in widening the Thirty Years' War and in weakening the Habsburgs in Europe at a time when they could least afford it. Without any further ado then, let's get into this as I take you to 1628. The Spanish had been spotted. Here, loaded down with all their treasures, they were at their most vulnerable. So here was where the Dutch Admiral decided to strike. The Dutch outnumbered their foe by a large margin, so victory was never in doubt. What mattered more was the speed of the attack. They needed to move against the Spanish before there was time to burn the precious cargo or scuttle the ships. The Dutch Admiral counted nine Spanish ships in total, and he knew that they contained, potentially, a great haul for the Dutch Republic. On board, if his intelligence was correct, were the fruits of the Spanish silver mines. Capturing this prize could swing the war determinedly against the Spanish, especially considering 
how intensely dependent upon regular shots in the arm from the Americas Madrid was. Already they had encountered the Spanish off of Cuba, but the bulk of the booty had escaped before it could be caught. Now, with the sun setting, here the enemy was again, hunkered down in the protection of Mantanzas Bay, some ways east of Havana. If this were a large-scale naval battle, few admirals would have contended these waters with the sun about to set. The Dutch admiral hoped that a proper battle would not commence, and he anticipated more of a smash-and-grab than a full-blown naval encounter. The Spanish were outnumbered more than three to one, so it would have been suicide for them to fight back. The best hope they had was to surrender or flee. But the true concern was that, in the process of undertaking their preferred strategy, the Spanish would destroy their precious cargo, deadening the impact of the triumph. The Dutch Admiral decided he could not risk it. He would attack at once. The 31 Dutch vessels opened fire and moved to intercept the Spanish ships before they could respond. The Spanish crumbled under the onslaught, with many jumping into the water rather than staying to contest the enemy warships. When the smoke settled, the Spanish were gone, and their wares were almost completely intact. The encounter had been worth it after all, but exactly how valuable was this haul of Spanish silver? Well, the counting began, and amidst the shouts and shrieks of the Dutch sailors, the incredible reality began to dawn on the Dutch admiral responsible for this adventure, Piet Hein. The men counted 80,000 kilograms of silver, thousands of animal hides, dyes and sugar from the surrounding islands. It was no wonder the enemy had attempted to flee. This was not just any valuable convoy, it was THE convoy carrying the silver which was meant to return the blood into the veins of Spain in time for the next payment on its debts. The precious silver was essential to keep the creaky payment system propped up. The Spanish had actually taken loans out on the basis of expecting this silver in the future. But Admiral Piet Hein had just severed this silver artery with potentially catastrophic consequences for Madrid and, of course, the Spanish war effort. More than the cost to the enemy, though, was the momentous boon to the Dutch fortunes. Piet Hein had been sent out in summer 1628 to find the Spanish treasure fleet, like so many of his peers before him who had braved treacherous conditions in the name of plundering glory. Unlike his predecessors, Piet Hein had succeeded on a scale never before imagined possible. Initial estimates put the total value of the haul at 11 million florins, but it may have been worth much more. Now that he had captured it, Hind would have to guard this floating financial supernova all the way home. This, incredibly, he also managed to do. The Spanish lost their chance to seize back their lost fortunes, and Admiral Hind ignored the English attempts to claim some for themselves, vintage King Charles. Evidently, word of the hall was spreading, and it spread all the way home. Hind successfully parried the remaining threats, guarded the hall in Amsterdam to a rapturous hero's welcome. It was precisely the pickup which the Dutch Republic needed, and they were determined to make the absolute most out of it. The proceeds of the treasure hall were spread surprisingly evenly among the Dutch. First to receive their share were the bondholders of the West India Company, which had made the venture possible in the first place by financing Hines' initial journey. These shareholders certainly made their money back, receiving a 75% dividend for their troubles. Hein was awarded 6,000 florins, a small fortune, 
as well as a gold medal commissioned especially for this daring exploit. The soldiers and sailors involved gained from the triumph as well, receiving 17 months' wages in advance, buoying morale and increasing confidence in their leaders that there was more where that came from. The impact was also felt immediately in Spain. With the bankruptcy announced the previous year in 1627, Olivares had hoped to effectively wipe the slate clean and restore confidence in Spanish power once more, but Piet Hein's triumph destroyed this hope at a stroke because it demonstrated exactly how precarious Spanish finances remained. Without the promise of the annual injection of silver, concerns among Spain's unfortunate lenders increased and the sailors responded to the Dutch daring in their own way. Rather than contend the seas with the Dutch in the expected periods, they would seek to avoid the Dutch and protect their precious cargoes by travelling later in the year during hurricane season. There were, of course, good reasons for avoiding the most perilous weather conditions while at sea, but this option was sourced from desperation. Alas, the abandonment of the regular sailing schedules inflicted defeats of its own. The weather would batter successive Spanish treasure fleets, as the crown lost 5 million florins in 1631 and nearly 4 million florins in 1641 during particularly terrible storms. Left with no other choice, the government seized a third of the privately imported silver in 1629, which did them no favours among entrepreneurs and brave sailors who committed to fudge their numbers in the future to avoid such seizures again. The seizure of private silver was a drastic step, but again, King Philip IV's administration felt it had little choice. As bad as the loss of so much money was at Piet Hein's hands, it was when the Dutch determined to harness this sudden influx of money for a determined campaign in 1629, that matters became truly desperate. Frederick Henry had his eyes on Sertigenbosch, the second largest city in Brabant after Antwerp, and the centre of Catholic propaganda and missionary work in the South Netherlands. It was a dramatic, daring move, and one which the Dutch stadtholder had been planning for some time. Learning the lessons of the Siege of Grohl from the previous year, Trenches were dug around the formidable city in April, and the besiegers settled in for a long siege. Behind the walls and protected by three strong outworks was a garrison of nearly 5,000 men, supported by 2,000 militia. It was destined to be a hard slog, and like Frederick Henry had done when the Spanish had besieged Breda a few years before, the Spanish were likely now to launch some form of diversionary attack into the Republic to compel him to break off the siege. Frederick Henry knew that whatever the Spanish did, he would have to stand firm outside the walls of Sertigenbosch. The seizure of Spanish treasure had enabled the Dutch government, or States General, to spend vast sums of money on increasing the size of the army. The resulting superiority in force was one advantage which Frederick Henry knew he had over the Spanish garrisons, which the impoverished and beleaguered Brussels government could no longer pay for. Another advantage was the absence of the traditional commander of the South Netherlands forces, the Marquis Spignola. Ambrogio Spignola had not been killed or carried off by disease. Instead, the grizzled veteran chose to bear a far more loathsome cross. He would travel to Madrid and plead for the government of Count Olivares and King Philip IV to forge a peace treaty with the Dutch before further losses had to be absorbed. 
Since 1628, Spinola had been of the opinion that peace with the Dutch was essential if Spain was ever to reap some benefit from its continued occupation of the South Netherlands. A journey to Madrid was hardly a prospect to fill one with excitement, particularly since Spinola expected the Spanish Council of State to blame him for the recent losses of the towns of Oldenzaal and Grohl. Spinola had further grounds to appeal for peace, though. He learned of the new Spanish commitment to the unfolding war in Mantua in North Italy, a conflict which Spain could hardly afford. After requesting greater investment in the Dutch war for so long, it must have been phenomenally frustrating for this experienced commander of men to watch more resources be sucked into an Italian vortex. As unable as Spain was to pursue the Dutch war to any successful conclusion, so long as it was so heavily committed along the Rhine, it was impossible to imagine that Spain possessed the resources to open this brand new front now in Italy. The shortages and weaknesses of the Spanish system had forced Spain to lean heavily on both Wallenstein and Emperor Ferdinand, as we will see. But while the latter was willing, the former was adamant that the Habsburgs could not afford so many theatres of war at one time. As commanders with experience in maintaining a war in the field, both Wallenstein and Spinola understood that the resources which were available were not infinite, and if the Emperor did not exhaust his reserves personally, he exhausted them out of a sense of obligation to the Spanish, who seemed, themselves, out of touch with reality. No less a figure than Peter Paul Rubens, the famed painter, was on hand to serve Spain as a diplomat during these years. Rubens' career was punctuated by the necessity to make peace with the Dutch before the worst excesses of the war ruined the Netherlands altogether. Furthermore, Rubens, like Spinola, was adamant that Spain's policy of severing the Dutch trade routes and blocking the key rivers was having an adverse effect on the subjects of Spain as well as the Dutch. The decline and gloom present in the South Netherlands, thanks to these severe restrictions, were exacerbated by the constantly hiked taxes, news of Dutch victories and, recently, the aftershocks felt following the capture of the treasure fleet by Piet Hein. Reflecting the gloom of Antwerp, a once great trading city and hub of the Netherlands, Rubens remarked in late 1628, This city languishes like a consumptive body which is gradually wasting away. Every day we see the number of inhabitants decreasing, for these wretched people have no means of supporting themselves either by manufacture or by trade. Both Rubens and Spinola had valid points, but Madrid did not seem to be listening. Throughout 1628, Spaniola had worked to reduce the Spanish demands, so that a lasting truce of some kind might be reached with the Dutch before it was too late. In April 1628, the Spanish were still insisting that the Dutch would have to desist from trading with the Americas, an impossible demand, before peace could be considered. Why, indeed, would the Dutch even consider such terms when the fortunes of the war were finally going their way? Indeed, this was Spinola's point, and by September 1628 it was digested, but only partially, by Madrid. The Spanish would offer terms and clung to a Dutch guarantee of religious toleration for Catholics, another impossible demand, and one which, of course, they refused to countenance themselves in their own lands. The talks collapsed before they had begun, and Spinola was close to despairing by the time 1629 dawned. And 1629 was an incredibly busy year of the war. Far to the north, 
The Swedes and Poles were in the process of concluding their war, which had handed lucrative new ports to the Swedish king, but had not been as triumphant as he had hoped. In France, the Huguenot fortress of La Rochelle had been captured at long last, ending the threat posed to Cardinal Richelieu's regime by any fifth-column religious dissidents. Just as the siege was concluding outside La Rochelle, Piet Hein was capturing the largest Spanish treasure fleet that had ever fallen into Dutch hands. From Mecklenburg, Albrecht of Wallenstein stepped up efforts to conclude a peace with the King of Denmark and end the war with that northern potentate before Sweden could intervene in force. Wallenstein advised moderate terms and eventually prevailed over the vengeful circle that existed around the Emperor. The Emperor was himself busy putting the finishing touches on the Edict of Restitution, a document which would soon change the landscape of the Holy Roman Empire. Then, in North Italy, the Spanish siege of Casal, a critical fortress town nearby Mantua, stalled amidst a lack of supplies and harsh weather. Spanish power was spread far too thin, just as Spignola had warned, and matters were about to get far worse. The widening of the Thirty Years' War meant that Spain was in no condition to contest a determined new campaign in the Netherlands. With morale in the toilet, no money arriving for the army in Flanders between October 1628 and May 1629, and Spaniola still in Madrid, it appeared that the Spanish Netherlands might capitulate as a whole to the Dutch. Although the population had long since outgrown their initial affection for the Spanish governess Isabella, who was the aunt of the King of Spain, Frederick Henry knew that Sir Hurtigenbosch could still be expected to put up a robust defence. While his forces would eventually swell to 120,000 men, thanks in large part to Piet Hein's silver hull, Frederick Henry had arrived outside the fortress city initially with only 28,000 men. Interestingly, the Stadtholder's army was composed of several foreign regiments. In his memoirs, Frederick Henry wrote that of the 18 regiments in his army, only three were Dutch. The rest were English, French, German, Scottish and even Walloon. These soldiers had been hired and depended upon the Stadtholder to coordinate regular pay with the Dutch States General, but they also tended to be fond of their commander, who was careful to provide them with kind words and to share in their burdens wherever he could. Arriving outside of Sertigenbosch on the 30th of April 1629, the sight must have been seriously impressive. Sertigenbosch was a kaleidoscope of interlocking rivers and streams, fortified by thick, heavy walls, impenetrable moats, and three tough layers of defences in depth, which guarded the few routes in and out of the city. Marshland also surrounded the city, so that forage was difficult to come by, and conditions had the potential to become quite miserable for the besiegers if Frederick Henry was not careful. What the world was beginning to learn was that Frederick Henry was careful, arguably too careful, in preparing the siege works. Under the sun of late spring, the soldiers toiled to craft the necessary trenches which would choke the city into surrender, while the inhabitants within the walls prepared for a showdown one which they were fairly confident of their success in. The city of Sertigenbosch had a vibrant history of repelling the invader, but even if this task was too demanding, it was thought certain that Spain would send reinforcements to save them. Surely, neither Madrid nor Brussels could afford to allow this beacon of Spanish defence in the region to fall. Shorn of funds and soldiers, the Spanish made use of diplomacy rather than military force in an attempt to save Sertigenbosch. With Wallenstein concluding his Danish war, 
It was thought that the time had come for Ferdinand to denounce the Dutch as breakers of the peace and commit to the destruction of that republic alongside Spain. This idea is familiar to us. It had been doing the rounds since 1625, and it was transformed into a shrill and consistent request by 1628. It initially seemed as though this petitioning had done the trick. Wallenstein was moved to send 20,000 of his own men for the relief of Sertigenbosch in June. Despite this promising start, though, the Spanish could not make up their minds. After having opened the war in Mantua, Olivares found that his gamble to conclude that conflict before the French had captured La Rochelle had manifestly failed. Now he was forced to make a choice, and in the end Olivares chose to redirect Wallenstein's contingent away from the Netherlands and send them down south to Italy in July, just as Frederick Henry's men had breached the last line of defences and were within 25 metres of the walls of Sertigenbosch. While the cause appeared bleak indeed for Madrid, Brussels had not given up all hope. In anticipation of the arrival of Wallenstein's contingent of 20,000 men, the Archduchess Isabella had ordered that as many people as possible be scraped together to join him. Together, these two armies would invade the Dutch Republic, forcing Frederick Henry to make a choice just like Spain had done. This ragtag force departed Brussels in mid-June, and while it lost its chance to link up with the redirected Imperials, it made towards the relief of Sertigenbosch instead. The Spanish scouts arrived near Sertigenbosch to discover that Frederick Henry had expected them, and had done something really incredible to protect his siege. Diverting the rivers nearby, Frederick Henry had guided them around his camp, so to create, in effect, a set of canals which would defend his men from any relieving force. This feat of engineering took just under three weeks to complete, and it characterised the stadtholder as a man of profound skill and perception. The Spanish force, frustrated by the great difficulty of their task after a few attempts to storm these artificial canals, turned back to the original plan and launched an invasion of the Dutch interior. Having invested so much in the siege, Frederick Henry refused to be moved by troubling reports of Spanish successes as their soldiers pushed to within 40 kilometres of Amsterdam. It was really a case of who would blink first, but as he expected, the Dutch eventually rallied, and the Spanish exhausted their supply lines, so that by late August 1629, their invasion had been repulsed, and by that point, Sertigenbosch was virtually in Frederick Henry's hands. He had achieved another coup, even before that bastion of Brabant had fallen to him. Thanks to the scraping together of so many garrisons to constitute the invasion force, Spain had left some of its fortresses dangerously undermanned. One of these fortresses, Vesel, was a town of the utmost importance because it guarded one of the few Rhine crossings in the region. At 4am on the 18th of August, a detachment of Frederick Henry's army arrived undetected outside Vesel, and it seized it after a brief skirmish. The fall of Vesel threatened Spanish communications and supply lines, particularly for that force, which had just invaded the Dutch interior. While the capture of Vesel was celebrated with enthusiastic salvos of gunfire in the Dutch camp, the defenders of Sertigenbosch recognised that the end was near, while Brussels worked to evacuate as many soldiers as it could before they were cut off. Through these careful, coordinated attacks, 
Frederick Henry had delivered successive decisive blows to the Spanish Netherlands regime, and he had gained a great prize in Sertogenbosch too, a prize which had eluded his half-brother Maurice during the latter's attempt to seize the city in 1601. The triumph of the Stadtholder was complete upon the surrender of Sertogenbosch on the 14th of September 1629. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. With great anticipation in some parts and fear in others, the question was what Frederick Henry would do next. Would he march directly upon Brussels, sue for an advantageous peace, or gobble up additional fortresses? News on the mood in the Spanish Netherlands, Frederick Henry would have been told, was that the Prince of Orange would be welcomed in Brussels with open arms but he could not be so sure. A notable visitor to Sertogenbosch during the ceremonial handover of the city was Frederick V, the dispossessed Elector Palatine and a person we haven't seen for quite a while now. A guest of the Dutch since 1621, Frederick had felt compelled to observe the siege works at Sertogenbosch several times during the siege's five-month duration. Frederick visited with ambassadors, princes, generals and more, and took time during the summer to stay with his family in a holiday home provided by further Dutch generosity. It is entirely possible that Frederick's activity at this time was a symptom of his attempt to keep his mind off the recent accident which had claimed the life of his firstborn son, also called, interestingly enough, Frederick Henry, since he had been named after that stadtholder. In addition, Frederick may have believed that he could make himself somewhat useful in the Dutch operations, and that his participation would be more worthwhile than lamenting over the failure of the Hague alliance. 
True to his character, Frederick did not see the ending of the war between Denmark and the Emperor as a conclusion of the struggle. Instead, he was confident that the King of Sweden had a pivotal role to play in his restoration and the application of justice. If the failures troubled him more than usual, it did not hamper his activity, but it did make him a touch more cynical. After watching the carefully crafted Hague Alliance splutter and die amidst the needless English declaration of war on France, Frederick resigned himself to having lost the entirety of his influence in King Charles's court. Frederick did not even bother recommending one English officer outside Sir de Genbosch for a promotion since all his previous letters to London had been ignored. Even though the Dutch war was not his central preoccupation and a resumption of hostilities in his name in Germany was preferable, it is still significant that this wandering, dispossessed figure chose to stand side by side with Frederick Henry when Sir de Genbosch was surrendered. It was a symbolic nod towards the unwritten rule of the conflict in Europe by this point, that even where the connection between the different wars had not been made official, the undeclared war would always be fought so long as mutual interests overlapped. Frederick was interested in seeing Spain brought low, since this would weaken the emperor, which would in turn brighten his prospects for restoration. With Ferdinand so supreme after the defeat of Denmark, and with the Edict of Restitution, transforming the religious dimension of the empire, it was likely of some solace to Frederick that he was able to take part somewhere in some act that disadvantaged the Habsburg dynasty. Practically, though, for all intents and purposes, the Dutch victory meant nothing for his dreams of restoration. Frederick would have to wait a bit longer for that dream to resurface again. We're going to continue this story of Sertigen Bosch and the Spanish-Dutch War in a bit, but first... I want to talk to you about Matchlock and the Embassy. Guys, Matchlock and the Embassy is a historical fiction series set in this period. And those figures we've mentioned, be it Frederick Henry or Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, they do feature, or they will be featuring, in future installations. Really, Matchlock is my way of exploring the Thirty Years' War and helping provide a window to those fans of fiction who might not otherwise read an enormous book on the conflict but it's also an immensely fun thing to do. I love writing stories, and I've really enjoyed writing that first instalment of the series. And yes, I said first instalment because there's many more to come. And if you're not sure whether or not you'd be interested in this series, which begins in 1622 when Matthew Locke lands in The Hague to try and find out what the story is with the brutal murder of his parents, then don't you worry. You can read the first book absolutely free of charge. All you have to do is click on the link in the description below. Now, you have two choices in this. You can either join the Facebook group and access it that way, or you can click on the link below and be signed up for my Matchlock newsletter and become what I like to call a Matchlock messenger. Oh no, you may be thinking, not more emails. Well, don't worry. If you really hate them that much, you can unsubscribe, but I won't be spamming you out of it. You might remember I tried to do a newsletter a while before and it kind of died in its ass because I just don't have that much time in my life, but this time I'm going to try and make a really good go of it. And it's pretty much essential, if you wanted to be an independent author, it's pretty much essential to have an email list of some kind. So let's see how we get on with this. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. I have plenty of content to send your way. And hopefully in the future we can work out some kind of exclusive bit of content, what they call a reader magnet, to entice people to sign up. But for now, we have this free copy of Matchlock and the Embassy. And as I said at the beginning, it'll be sent directly to your favourite e-reader. So don't let the 
concerns of technology put you off, check that out by clicking on the link in the description below. And remember that on the 15th of September, guys, this book is released to the world. And by the 15th of September, you won't be able to read this book for free anymore. So get in there while you can. And hey, if you've enjoyed it, and the initial reviews have been really, really encouraging, if you enjoy it, then please save up that sense of enjoyment. And when the book launches, let the world know by giving us a review on Amazon or Goodreads or Google Play or iBooks or wherever else you like to get your books from. Basically, help me get this book out to as many people as possible by letting those people know that it's actually pretty good. And I know that it's good because my wife and my dad told me that it's good and they couldn't possibly be biased sources. Now, could they? Alright guys, you know I'm really excited about Matchlock and the Embassy, and we will of course talk about it again in the future, but for now, let's get back to the episode. Frederick was correct in some sense. The fall of Sertigenbosch did inflict a crippling blow against the Brussels administration, which had to be immediately contained. The war which Spain had initiated in Mantua could now no longer be reinforced by soldiers from the Netherlands. These had been wasted in the recent campaign. This would place further strain on the Emperor's manpower reserves, and it left a great burden upon Ferdinand to pursue the war in Italy, a war which he did not need to fight, to its successful conclusion, regardless of expense. Fears of overextension, of a lack of available funds, instituted a striking turnaround in Spanish policy over the months following the loss of Sertigenbosch. Gradually, Spain abandoned several of its positions along the Rhine and just below the Dutch Republic's border, handing some of these over to the Catholic League. With Spain's Dutch war no longer spilling into Germany, it was easier than before for the Dutch to keep to themselves and refrain from provoking the Holy Roman Emperor to make war on them, not that he realistically would have been able to anyway. Consequentially, it was that much harder for the Holy Roman Emperor under Spanish pressure to make a case against the Dutch as disturbers of the peace and to argue for a war against them on that basis. The knock-on effects of Sertigenbosch for Habsburg's strategy were therefore considerable, but closer to home in the Netherlands, the results were even more profound. Never have these provinces been more bitter in their enmity towards Spain. If the Prince of Orange and the rebels were not kept by their fanatical intolerance from granting liberty of worship and from guaranteeing their possession of church property to the clergy, then the union of the loyal provinces with those of the north could not be prevented. This was the opinion of a Spanish official describing the dire situation facing Brussels by late 1629. It was accurate for two major reasons. The first was that the Spanish administration had lost considerable public support in the South Netherlands as the successes against the Dutch in the field dried up, the taxes increased and now the Dutch triumphs accumulated. The old government of the Archdukes under Isabella and the late Albert was a distant memory since that administration folded after the latter's death in 1621. Since then, the Spanish Netherlands had been ruled by two military juntas, one consisting of empowered Spanish officials, another of hand-picked local elites. This bypassed the Spanish Council of State, the traditional council of appeal and administration, and it irritated those who served that institution because the two juntas frequently went behind their backs or neglected to consult them at all. 
These quarrels about governance were exacerbated by the tarnished record of those that did cling to power at the region's expense as the population was led to successive disasters and defeats. The Archduchess Isabella had once been a beloved figure for her demonstrated piety and work to better the country, but patience with her and the regime she stood for was quickly exhausted once it was apparent she could not protect them from the exactions of Madrid. Yet the above extract also revealed that even while everything appeared gloomy, the people of the Spanish Netherlands would not throw down their arms and invite the Prince of Orange to Brussels for one key reason. Wherever Frederick Henry's triumphs spread, so too did the efforts to establish Calvinism and displaced the Catholicism which resided there. It is important to pause and consider the nature of the religious divide in the Netherlands. Don't worry, don't throw your hands up in despair, it's not going to be dull and boring. In many respects, the case is very similar to that of Germany. The Protestant North and the Catholic South of the Empire were similar in many instances, but the religious divide ensured a degree of separation. Similarly, in the South Netherlands, it was religious questions that compelled Protestant merchants and tradesmen to emigrate in their tens of thousands to the cities of Amsterdam and The Hague, just as the Catholic priests and disgruntled citizens of Sertigenbosch and the surrounding region of North Brabant made a choice between staying put or travelling from their homes to where their religion was protected and practised. In the North and South Netherlands, religious tolerance was a hot-button issue. We have seen the Spanish insist upon it during any peace talks that had been opened. While it might strike us as hypocritical that the Spanish insisted on religious freedoms that they had no intention of maintaining themselves, that they insisted upon it at all is significant. When the Kingdom of the Netherlands was established in the aftermath of the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the fusing of the two blocks of the Netherlands together appeared to make strategic and geographic sense. Yet the breakdown of this arrangement and the Belgian Revolution that followed clarified the situation. Despite living as neighbours for hundreds of years, the inhabitants of the North and South Netherlands were no closer to living in harmony in 1815 than they were in 1629. Frederick Henry could conquer as many formidable fortresses as he liked, and he could, if he was brave enough, make a move on Brussels. Unless he made some supreme effort to win the hearts and minds of the Spanish Netherlands populace though, starting with the confirmation of religious freedoms, there was no way that the Brussels administration could fall. If they would not fight for Spain or for Spain's king, the Flemish, Walloons and Brabanters would collectively fight to preserve their right to worship as Catholics. These Catholics watched with indignation as the Calvinists in The Hague sent their uncompromising demands to the new citizens in their fold. Rather than freedom, these new citizens would have to conform. This inflexibility in religion cost Frederick Henry his best opportunity to unify the two blocks of the Netherlands together under his rule. The Stadtholder realised too late the importance of religion to the new citizens, and even then, with the Calvinists left in control following the disruptions of earlier years, he was largely powerless to object. Had he objected with enough vigour, history may have played out very differently. Yet it is a significant fact of the period that while religion did not underline all aspects of the Thirty Years' War, nor could the conflict be classified as a holy war with much accuracy, religion still played a pivotal role in shaping the fortunes of both sides. The uncompromising Calvinism of the Dutch government prevented a total victory in the Netherlands and the ejection of the Spanish from the region. 
But don't forget, on the other hand, the pronouncement of the Edict of Restitution and the rise of militant Catholicism in Germany guaranteed that Protestant Germans across the empire would fight back, using whatever means necessary to protect their positions and their freedoms. Frederick Henry was but an instrument in one theatre of this process, but he was a supremely important instrument. His triumphs had undermined the Habsburg supremacy in Germany, the Netherlands and in North Italy, right at the time when the King of Sweden and the French were looming on the horizon, and the Emperor's subordinates planned on taking him to task. Before the Emperor's position was challenged in 1630 though, the situation in North Italy had to be dealt with. Having played a not insignificant role in undermining the Habsburgs there, other forces were at work that were determined to make Mantua just the latest in a series of costly missteps for the dynasty's plummeting fortunes. In the next episode, we'll look at that Mantuan War and assess its importance during this critical period of the Thirty Years' War. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, and I hope you'll click on the link in the description below and check out Matchlock and the Embassy absolutely for free. But until then, my name is Zach, a train's going by outside, and this has been episode 42 of the Thirty Years' War. Thanks so much for listening, I hope you have a great week, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.